Hello, my friends. Welcome back to another conversation on the Naked Leadership Podcast. This week, I am joined by Dan and Adrian, of course, and we have a guest today, Jesse Merrill. Jesse is the CEO and founder of Good Culture. They produce all kinds of yummy things like cottage cheese and yogurt, as you'll hear in the intro of this episode. We had a little banter back and forth with Dan and Jesse. I left it in here because it was such a fun conversation, but also such a testimonial to the products and the culture and uh, the values that this company follows. And it was such a delight to sit down with Jesse and talk about making decisions from values and being vulnerable with your team. I can't wait to hear, for you to hear it. So without further delay, I give you Jesse Merrill from Good Culture. Do you produce the culture, a good culture, um, cottage cheese? Do you guys have a cottage cheese? Yes, exactly. Yep. I, yeah, I yeah, eat, we, yeah. That's my favorite snack. Oh, awesome. You eat good culture cottage cheese? I do. Oh, nice. And I, just wanted, I was wondering if the same company, because I, I go, every time I go to Whole Foods, I pick up two or three of those. That la- I mean, really good. Perfect. What do you what do you buy? Do you buy the plain varieties, classic? I buy the plain. Yeah. Yep. All right. Nice. You get, you get the big tubs or the small tubs? I get the, I, if they have the big, I get the big. Otherwise, I get the big. <laughs> All right. Nice. Yeah. Great I'm, to meet I'm, you. Yeah, this you too. This is going to be the intro. I'm leaving this in. This is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> right. I love your cottage cheese. <laughs> yeah. I do. I'm nice. telling you, man, it's the best snack in the world. It is. It is. I'm going to give it to this. Oh, yeah. No, I, I crush like a 16 ounce tub of I like I like 4% or 6% higher milk fat and yeah. I'll crush a full tub with like crackers and I'll yeah. just like scoop into the 16 ounce tub and just inhale the whole thing in one sitting. I and throw a little so bit of sauce good. in there, mix it up. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You can get super creative with the add-ins. Yeah, but yeah, it's, it's a good. it's a good nutrient dense high protein snack. So I'm glad <laughs> glad you like it. Yeah. Dan's excitement about this call just moving through the roof. He's like, yeah, yeah, he's like, like okay, I met right. I can't wait to tell my wife. Guess what? Right. I took an interview right. Yeah, like this is I'm, the guy I'm that talking makes to shit. my drug dealer. I'm talking <laughs> to my drug dealer. Like you're the guy? You're the right. one? Right. Yeah. That's me. Yeah. Well, I, like your, <laughs> I mean, I, I read some of your story and I didn't know if, and I I didn't I didn't put two and two together and I went, Oh, this is the Great. guy with the cottage cheese. Let's formally kick this thing off. All right. We already have uh, five minutes of content here. So uh, (laughs) welcome, everybody. Welcome back to the conversation. My name is Chad. I'm here with Dan and Adrian as usual. Gentlemen, how are you? Wonderful. Good to be here. Excellent. Feeling good. Awesome. Today we have a guest and Jesse Merrill's with us from Good Culture. How are you, Jesse? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're, we're excited to have you. You, of course, this is a crossover interview. You were on Adrian and Allie's podcast, Raise the Bar, and that was a fun interview. And uh, once you were there, Adrian said, hey, this is good people. Let's have him over here. <laughs> and uh, I think we can learn a thing or two about leadership from him as well and have a good conversation. So we really appreciate your time and your generosity coming to us. There are so many... Um, culture puns that I am going to resist throughout this entire conversation. <laughs> right. Cause so much of what we talk about is culture. Um, and, uh, and you of course coming from good culture. I love the name. I love the look. So right at the top of this conversation, Jesse, I'd love to hear just, let's get some context around good culture, your Mm -hmm. background, um, and the type of team that you guys have over there, because I think that'll give some good fodder and some, and some context for some of the questions that I have for you. So if you don't mind just kind of bringing us on uh, behind the scenes a little bit at good culture. Yeah, no, absolutely. So yeah, I don't know if it's helpful at all for you to go, you know, further back into how, you know, into my, into my story and kind of how I got to good culture, but I'll, I'll try to keep that part short. Um, But I started, um, I know you heard some of this in Adrian's uh, podcast, but I started in filmmaking actually. So I have a creative background, wanted to be a filmmaker, worked for um, some exciting people like Jonathan Demi, who did Silence of the Lambs and Philadelphia and got to learn a lot from some folks like that. Um, And that kind of led me in a bizarre way to experiential marketing um, because I was a PA and I needed to make extra cash. And I had some friends that were doing some sampling stuff and they were like, Hey man, easy way for you to make extra cash is to just like get a job with these promo companies and pass out samples and super easy work. And, you know, you can just do that to, um, you know, kind of, um, you know, help, help provide more cash for you. And 
I did that and fell in love with this, um, with, with experiential marketing and, and really fell in love with connecting with the consumer, introducing new products to consumers in a way that connected with them on an emotional level and got really excited about that and started to actually put more of my time into that versus what I was doing on the filmmaking side and actually found that there, it was really creative um, in, in terms of how to connect with consumers. Um, I was uh, creating fun ways to, to connect from an experiential standpoint. I was dry, build, you know, creating content with consumers. Um, and so I was able to really satisfy my creative desires on the marketing side, specifically around experiential field marketing. And did that for some time. And that ultimately led to a position with the, uh, with the techno rocker Moby who had a company called Teeny, And I worked with him in New York City, helping him to build that brand, did that across about a year and a half time period. He sold the company a year and a half later. We did tremendously well in New York. I got to learn, you know, kind of firsthand what it took to build a, a brand from the ground up. Uh, and then that led me to Honest Tea, um, where I got to work with um, Seth Goldman, who's an amazing, um, inspirational uh, thought leader uh, within the sustainability movement. And that for me was like, you know, I joined them when they were sub 10 million, they're primarily sold in the natural channel. And I came on and helped to scale that company. And we took it from sub 10 million to uh, north of 75 million in less than five years. And then we sold to Coca-Cola. Um, and that was a company. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So it was just awesome. Right. And it, and it kind of all just came together so quickly for me. So, you know, I kind of went from, I want to be a filmmaker to now I'm building these purpose-led brands. Um, and I'm getting to work under amazing, you know, thought leaders like Seth Goldman. And it just taught me so much. And really for me created the, the catalyst or the inspiration to want to go off and, and create my own uh, purpose-led organization. And so after the company sold to Coca-Cola, um, I had an opportunity to work with Anders Eisner, who's the son of Michael Eisner, the ex-CEO at Disney, who had started an enhanced water brand. And he needed someone to help him um, on the marketing side. So I came over, um, helped to lead the marketing charge there, worked closely with him. And within about you know, a three-year time period, we sold that company. And after that, Anders and I came together and said, hey, loved working with you on this. Let's do something together. What is that going to look like? And, and, and it was kind of like blank slate. Like we just knew we wanted to do something together. We knew it had to be something that um, really aligned with our values, um, that was mission-led. And we kind of stumbled upon cottages as being an opportunity area, a white space opportunity, because there was just nothing happening in that category. It was so sleepy, so tired, so stagnant, um, but a sizable category right here. This is a $1.1 billion category that has had little to no innovation since like the seventies when cottage cheese was actually bigger than yogurt. Um, but when you looked at the shelf, it was just, you know, loaded with dated packaging, large tubs of products that um, didn't have ingredients that I would even feed to my children. They were loaded with additives, you know, carrageenan, different gums, different chemical preservatives. Um, there was really nothing happening from a format standpoint, from a structure standpoint. Um, so, you know, and, and really nothing happening exciting from a flavor standpoint. So we saw a big opportunity to bring, bring relevance back to this nutrient dense, high protein, low sugar uh, product and category in a way that would be relevant to younger consumer segments that had just fallen off of cottage cheese or we're now um, strictly eating yogurt or other, other other categories so that became our mission it was how do we bring relevance back to cottage cheese how do we make cottage cheese sexy again um, and then from there how do we make it a larger platform um, that becomes much more um, than just cottage it becomes about much more than just being a cottage cheese company um, so kind of two things happened right so there was the business opportunity that i just outlined but then there was two other moments um, that really drove, you know, kind of the why behind what uh, good culture is, what we stand for and our values. And, and, and the first thing was I, I had an autoimmune condition that um, I was diagnosed with right as I was starting good culture uh, called ulcerative colitis, which creates unnecessary inflammation in your gut. It, there's, there's so much pain, horrible symptoms. You can't work, you can't sleep, you lose weight. This horrible situation, um, had a colonoscopy done, feared for the worst. They told me it was ulcerative colitis. They told me it was a chronic condition that I would never heal. I'd have to live on steroids or other drugs for life. I pushed back on that pretty, you know, aggressively and asked, you know, you know, is there any other way? There must be some correlation between what I consume and inflammation in my gut. 
Um, and the resounding answer was no, there's just not enough science to support that. So you got to live on these drugs. And I pushed back and I ultimately found an integrative doctor that put me on a restrictive diet where I ate uh, nothing other than animal protein, culture, dairy, um, cooked vegetables and fruit. And that was it. And within about uh, call it two months of, of eating that way, all my symptoms went away. And after year one, I had another colonoscopy and all my inflammation levels had kind of dropped back to a you know, healthier level. Uh, by year two, I was at a, you know, a very healthy level, kind of back to normal. Um, and by year three, I had a biopsy and the pathology came back showing that I no longer had ulcerative colitis. And the doctor was like, you know, I don't know exactly what you did, but I don't need to see you for another 10 years, which was amazing, right? Because I was told um, that I had to get a colonoscopy at least once a year for the rest of my life. And colonoscopies suck. Um, and so I was excited to, to not have to do that anymore. But it really, you know, the bigger picture there, you know, bigger story is that it validated my belief in food as medicine. And I realized that good culture, you know, had to be about putting real foods um, into, into the market um, in, in a big way, real healing foods. Um, so that was kind of like one, um, you know, pillar. The other one was as I got closer to dairy, because I didn't have a dairy background prior to good culture, um, I found out that 90% of, um, of dairy cows in the US are confined. And that completely broke my heart. I saw clearly that we you know, had a broken food system and it became my mission at that point to fix the food system and to create um, a milk supply that really doesn't exist. So we have a combination of organic products, um, but we also have um, pasture-raised products. And as the company grows and scales, a pasture-raised milk supply doesn't exist um, to support our growth. So we're actually building a new milk supply right now. We're, we're partnering with the second largest co-op in the country. Um, and we're actually um, you know, putting money into transitioning or converting conventional farms to pasture-raised farms, where these animals will have access to pasture throughout the year. Um, there's a focus on, on soil health as a result of that. Um, it's called planned grazing. Um, and, you know, with soil health, improved soil health, there's, there's a sustainability or an environmental play because you're now able to capture more carbon. Um, but you are also able to increase uh, biodiversity and ultimately uh, that leads to more nutrient dense foods. So you have healthier foods um, and you're creating a more profitable model for the farmer, um, which, which brings in younger generations of farmers, which is a huge issue, right? Where there's a lot of farmers that are getting crushed right now um, and younger generations are not carrying it, you know, carrying on the business and that's creating a challenge. So soil health, regenerative agriculture is something that is bringing life um, you know, back to these farmers. And like I said, it's good for the animal, it's good for the environment, but it's also really good for the farmer. Um, so that continues to drive, you know, kind of, you know, a lot of our decisions. So, so kind of the healing of food as medicine, in addition to changing the food system drives every decision that we make as a, as a company. I love all that yep. huge mission, huge vision. Yep. And uh, I love that you laid that out because where we want to go with this conversation, what we want to talk about is leadership and the context of leadership inside of vision and the, your personal story about finding healing through food and food is medicine is really cool in that context. I'm wondering, as you think about that story and thanks again for laying all of that out is um, how does that now play into how you show up as a leader for your team, for the mission and for the vision. How do you, uh, how does that um, provide context for your daily activity when you're, when you're working with your people? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like, like I said, it informs every decision, right? So we are definitely a value-based company. Um, our, our why statement is to make real healing foods available to all without hurting the planet or our animals. Um, so when we're thinking about innovation, when we're thinking about ingredient selection, um, you know, that those filters um, will inform every decision that we make. And, you know, as we talk to our employees on a, on a daily basis about, you know, kind of how we need to show up in the marketplace and how we need to make decisions and how we need to uh, treat all stakeholders. Um, again, that informs um, our approach and it's not always the best situation from a profitability standpoint, it's not always the best business decision, um, but we have to work around that, right? Because 
if there's one thing that you can't do as a leader um, is you, you know, you can't, you can't erode your, your, your mission. You can't erode your, your why, right. That's, that is not something that's a non-negotiable. You can't change that. Um, and the company is very clear on that. You know, I speak about our, our, our why statement and our values on probably every monthly company call to remind them, you know, about who we are and how we need to show up and how we need to make our decisions. Um, and, and you have to overcommit to these things, right. Cause there's a lot of companies that have, you know, kind of their list of values, but it's kind of something that's just like, you know, they, they write it, they, they hang it up somewhere and no one really looks at it again, um, unfortunately. And we're over committing to it. And when I say over commit, we're literally, you know, hiring and firing against those values, right? If you're not living up to those values, if you're making decisions that stand counter to those values, then, then, you know, you're not going to be a good fit for the company long-term because it's going to erode what we're doing. It's going to erode, erode the spirit or the why of the company. Um, so it, it, it really, as I said, informs kind of every, every decision we make. As you think about your history and I just, I got a little bit of your career history based off Mm -hmm. of LinkedIn. So I don't even know how accurate that is, but you also laid out this marketing history. And at some point you found marketing and you're like, Hey, this is creative. This is fun. Mm -hmm. You know, it fulfilled a need. I'm sure you were pretty naturally, uh, rock starish at it. And, um, but then I see a pattern in your history where it starts to look like VP of marketing. And when I see VP of marketing, I see team lead. I've got people that report to me that I'm in charge of that I'm now that are now counting on me to lead them through a vision and a mission. I'm always interested to hear how that evolution was for you, like from uh, operating in a space that you're really good at is skill set, learning, experimenting, being creative, being the one out there doing the thing into a position of now I've got a team that I need to bring on board with me to, to accomplish this thing that, that we've said we're, we're about how, what was that, that experience for you, that transition? Yeah, no, that's a, it's a good question. Um, and it's something I, I think is a constant, you know, evolving, you know, kind of learning for me, um, as, as a leader. Um, and you're right. You know, when I think back to my, my marketing positions that were a bit more narrow, like I, you know, I still had a team that I had to think about and I still had to, you know, show up as a, as a good leader, but it certainly gets broader as you're, um, you know, now leading an organization as a founder CEO. And for me, like the number one thing that I feel, you know, really helps move the needle is just being vulnerable. Um, like bottom line, like if you're vulnerable, uh, with your team, if you're not afraid to speak to the things that scare the shit out of you and get them in on it, you know, and help them under, like help them understand that you're not, you know, this perfect person with a, you know, super tough exterior that doesn't feel anything that's kind of robotic in the way they show up because that, you know, there's, there are leaders that are like that. And I think that's, um, you know, historically a lot of really strong leaders kind of have that robotic quality, right? Like they don't feel anything. They have every answer. Um, and I don't think that builds the best, culture, right? Your team wants to feel that open collaboration. They want to have that transparency with you. They want to be comfortable talking to you about the things that they're um, excited about or the things that they're afraid of. And so if you can create a culture of true transparency, um, it goes such a long way and, and create that transparent culture. Like I said, it's, it's all built on a foundation of being vulnerable um, and, and being vulnerable is, you know, it's a, it's a tough thing to do in an authentic way. Um, so if you're brave enough to, to open up to your employees, uh, in, in that way, it just creates so much trust. And once you have trust, you have collaboration. And if you have, you know, st- true collaboration that ultimately drives results. Is it, I mean, so I think it's beautiful. I'm curious about, can you give some examples of like where, where you were vulnerable or what you were vulnerable about? Um, I was just in a, a conversation with some clients or I guess a potential client this mm-hmm. week. And, you know, he, he was talking about like, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's, you know, they, they have kicked ass in COVID almost killed them. And now they are, they have rebounded beyond their wildest dreams. And now he's on the rocket scared to death. He looks as bad as he feels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, like yep. I feel really insecure. Do I look that bad? You know, that would have been vulnerable. And he said, maybe I should tell my team that like as a, 
you know, like maybe I should, but it sounds like you have a process by which you like, you know what, I need to bring people into my, I need to bring people into the conversation I'm in. I just love to hear some examples of that. Yeah, uh, no, just because I think people are encouraged. They don't, they don't, people don't see that as a superpower. You're saying it's a part of the, the road that takes you home. So yeah, no, more. absolutely. Yeah, 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 for sure. And, and look, I, I think you said it well, like it is, I think it is a superpower. Um, because I know I'll, I'll, there, there are several founders today that speak about, you know, being vulnerable. Um, but I don't know how many actually do it in an authentic way. Um, um, make that distinction because yeah. that's an important distinction. Yeah. Like what, you know, like, how do you, how are you vulnerable in authentic? Like, how have you seen it or how have you been even better been vulnerable inauthentically in the past? And how are you, you know, as you're committed to be, being vulnerable authentically, what's that look mm -hmm. like? And you know, make that distinction if you can. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's like manufactured vulnerability or <laughs> like, you're like, okay, these are like the, I'm going to open up my call today and I'm going to talk to them about, you know, some, something that, you know, I don't feel good about, or, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to like kind of rehearse my vulnerability. Um, that's one way of, you know, trying to do it. The other thing is just being super, super raw and really opening yourself up to the things that are, like I said earlier, you know, kind of scary to you, things that you're concerned about and things that you really need their help with versus coming in saying, I know all the answers. This is what we need to do to win. You know, follow me to the top of the mountain, like period. Um, and look, and, and, I'm not, and I'm not saying like, you still need to have confidence as a leader, right? You, you, you can't go in as a complete like disheveled mess, not knowing anything. I think you still need to have a strong point of view. Um, you need to create, um, you know, some clear inspiration and motivation for the, for the way you think, you know, we need to show, up, uh, you know, in a way that will allow us to win. But at the same time, I, I think you have to let them know about the things that you're genuinely, um, you know, scared of, you know, these are the things that kept me awake at night. Like, listen, I couldn't sleep last night because I was really scared about how we're going to grow, um, you know, our manufacturing, how are you know, how are we going to keep up with demand? Uh, we need, you know, we, we need to turn on more manufacturing in order to support that growth. It's scaring the shit out of me. I'm, 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 I, you know, I couldn't sleep at all last night thinking about it. Like guys, like you got to help me out here. Like, like I don't have the answer for that. I have some clear recommendations. I have, you know, I have a, a, a clear, um, you know, kind of path in terms of, I, I, you know, I, I think I have a clear path in terms of how we get to a better place, but I don't fully know the answer. So I need your help. Like, I really need your freaking help. Like as, as like, you know, as a, as a, as a peer, as an employee, as a family member, as a team member, like just speak to me as a friend, like how, how would you help me here? And really just like have that genuine open conversation. And when they see that you're genuinely reaching out to them in that way, I mean, the conversation changes so freaking dramatically. And I've seen it like, look, this is something that I've been super intentional about, right? Like I've tried to be like the leader with tough exterior that has all the answers and then I've, you know, and I've gone, you know, back, you know, I've gone down more of a vulnerable uh, path, which to me, it just kind of, I think happens a bit more naturally. And it's something I'm actually more comfortable being vulnerable than I am trying to be the robotic. I know everything leader. Um, yeah. And when I do that, I mean, I mean, the body language changes. I mean, like, like you'll see it for on a zoom call, like suddenly they're like, they're like, you know, they're kind of leaning in, they're like talking, they're like engaged, you know, what, what, what's kind of started as is like, kind of like stoic, robotic discussion, canned answers. What am I going to say to sound smart? Ends up being a, a, an environment where they're sharing real thinking, real real thoughts around what, what they think is the best way to do something without any fear of not having the right answer or the best answer or sounding like they don't you know have enough information in that conversation. Um, and so again, I think it, it leads to, it, 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 it builds that trust, like I said, and that, and that trust, in, in my experience, kind of, always leads to, to action. Um, bottom line. So yeah, that's well, nice there's, that's go ahead. No, I, you, you said something. I just want to, yeah. it's interesting. The distinction you made, which is you can be the leader and know exactly where you want to go, but you have you, you may struggle with how to get there. Mm -hmm. And, and that there's a distinction there that as long as, because a lot of the conversations I have with my clients and we start talking about vulnerability is the fear of losing the team's respect. Yeah. Right? somehow. And I think it's oversimplified vulnerability to mean that I'm going to somehow be helpless in this matter rather than 
I'm clear about where I'm headed. I'm clear about where we're going. I, I'm confused about some of the ways to get there. I don't know what the best way would be. And I'm inviting, I really inviting the team, which is why I hired, why we have a team to open up and bring their expertise to the table and have a conversation to, to have, to get to the best answer. Right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's a big distinction for, for leaders. I know to get that across, we have a, a client that I've been working with for the last couple of years and he's a very smart, really, you know, and his concern is he doesn't want to lose the respect of his team and making mm -hmm. that distinction is not easy. Um, and I think partially because he's not, he is clear as where he wants to go, but often I think it gets confused with having to know how to get there. That's, that's the big distinction I heard in what you were saying. It helped me just, in fact, I can't wait to get back on the phone with him. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. Um, well, I, I was just thinking, as you're talking, Jesse, I was thinking about um, the benefit or like re really like the, the aim of the vulnerability is, is I think you're, the distinction, uh, sorry, it really hits me is like, because mm -hmm. the aim is um, there's something we can do together that I can't do by myself. There's a, there's a connectedness that is the purpose of it. Like, hey, by the way, if we, there's a result and I can't get it there. And by the way, that's a silly aim. <laughs> we actually, yeah. we really need each other. And this is where the beauty happens. And this is actually where like team happens. Right. You know, I don't know, I don't know a human that doesn't want to feel needed and doesn't want to feel important and doesn't want to feel appreciated and doesn't want to feel seen all this stuff. I mean, we, yeah. we're all broken at times and, you know, cynical and blah, 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 but that's not us at a, at a, at a core, at a core level. We all want to be seen understood, connected and all that. We, I don't, we don't get to run from that. I mean, that, that's, that's in us, I think as human beings. So I hear you saying vulnerability is the way to, to generate team connection. And that's for anybody listening to this. It's like, think about the, the speaking that happens in your meetings and if it's to do that, or if it's to look good. And I think most meetings are about looking good and the, what's my best idea and how can I say that? And then shut down and, you know, I'm here to say something versus what you're doing is like here to invite something. That's like gold for those right. that are right. wondering about breakthroughs on their team. Jesse edges. It's really cool. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's really well said. Right. Cause we all, we all strive to ensure that everyone on the team, um, you know, feels seen, heard, understood, appreciated. And you're right. That's exactly how you get there in an authentic way. Um, you know, versus kind of manufacturing that. Um, so yeah, if you do it in an authentic way, um, then, then that, and yeah, they're going to feel seen, they're going to feel heard, they're going to feel understood and appreciated. And they're going to, and they know that they have a, a, an environment, um, or a platform for always kind of coming to you, um, in that capacity. And that's just going to foster that trust and that, that ability to collaborate and drive results. It's really cool. I mean, yep. when you talk like this, I'm just like, I want to be on this team. Sorry, yes. guys. <laughs> yeah. Hey, man, you're 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 hired. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go be on. <laughs> what <it>. openings do you have? Yeah. You talked well, about you you talked about purpose led brands and and good culture being a purpose led brand. And what keeps coming up for me in this conversation, hearing from you, Jesse, is like purpose led authenticity. Mm -hmm. Right. It's it's not a hopeless. It's not a wandering. It's not a um, you know, a, a poor me authenticity. It's a, Hey, here's where we're going now. I don't know what turns to take. That's why you're here, um, to help me figure those out. And that's, that's really powerful. I'm a little bit of a, of a sharp turn, but I'm curious as you talk about being an air, uh, an experiential marketer, such a fun, I, I did, I owned a film business for, mm. uh, about, uh, I don't know. I, well, I still own it. So I've owned it about for about <laughs> nine years. Um, nice. and we did, we did all of the experiential marketing events for Volkswagen. And it was so fun to watch the creativity that came the, the way to attract people, all of the stuff that you talked about that like drew you into it. It yep. was so fun to capture that and show it to the world and to their execs and all of that kind of stuff. And we got to kind of see the BTS of all of that kind of stuff. I'm right. curious that background of experiential marketing, how does it, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but how does that influence your experience there and what you learned about people, about yourself? How does that influence the way that you lead in your organization? Yeah, I think it 
it impacts several things. So one, one of our values is to be, you know, consumer first, um, you know, organization or company. And that's something that we take incredibly seriously, um, you know, in terms of how we respond to their emails or their phone calls. Um, I, I personally responded to every single consumer email up until about probably a year ago because it, it, it got to a point where it was just insane. And like my entire life was responding to consumers, um, which may, you know, it may not have been the best use of my time, but I didn't look at it that way. Right. I'm like, no, no, no. Like they're getting a personal freaking response from me on every concern that they have. And that, you know, that came through in, in their responses and in the way, like I mean, the, the word of mouth that you saw, um, as a result of just that one effort that I was making was huge. I mean, they would talk to me about how like they tell their friends and their friends tell their friends that this is a company that really cares. And not only are your products good, but the founder is actually like reaching out to me and, you know, sending me free t-shirts and free coupons. If I had an issue with something like it, it went a long way. Um, and so to me that, that is an experience, right? Like you're creating an, a consumer experience and that's a, a simple you know, way to, to do it. And it, by the way, doesn't really cost the company any money to do that. It's just like taking that next step um, and really th- and putting the consumer first. So I think experiential marketing taught me to always uh, put the consumer first and to always create that um, sticky, memorable experience that's going to drive word of mouth. Um, and so that, that kind of, um, you know, informs a lot of the decisions that we make, um, as a company and, um, it informs a lot of the decisions that our, that our marketing team is making from a tactical standpoint, from a strategic standpoint, um, is, you know, how do you create these experiences that are going to, that are going to result in fans loving you? Um, you know, where, where there's love, there's life. Um, and if we can create that true brand love that will ultimately drive the consumer to act. And so that's, that's what we're trying to do. I mean, experiential marketing, I think for me created, um, you know, that, that was like the perfect foundation for me to kind of, you know, fully understand that dynamic um, and to then practice uh, that in everything that we do. So I'm assuming um, that's cool on a consumer side. Um, and I, I'm interested to hear how you, how that translates to your team in your leadership. I assume you put a lot of thought into the experience your team's having as well, your people. I'm wondering if you would, talk about that. Yeah. Uh, and, and one other thing that I will build on, um, before I get into that is also being scrappy, um, as a, as a founder or as an operator, experiential marketing teaches you to be incredibly scrappy, right? Cause you're, you're doing a lot with a little, um, you're creating PR value, um, you know, you know, on some, you know, based on, a, on an initiative that didn't cost a lot of money. Um, uh, and, and, that was one thing that we did like very well at honest tea back in the day where we didn't have big marketing budgets. Um, we actually gave, um, honest tea away, um, on based on the honor system. It was called honest cities. And we just set up these kiosks with, um, with, with honest tea and we had a box in it, you know, it was based on the honor system. You could buy a, a bottle, um, you know, for a buck on the honor system. And there was, there was the, the kiosks were rigged with cameras. Um, and we tested, um, you know, the honesty. So we had like an honesty index based on each city to see how many people like purchased a bottle versus how many people stole the bottle. Um, and it was like a simple idea, but it created this really fun experience. Um, and it pulled from, you know, a, you know, a core value of the company and it got so much freaking press, like incredible levels of press. Um, it was probably our most, you know, impactful marketing initiative, uh, for years. Um, and that was something that, again, it didn't, didn't cost a lot of money. So, you know, as I think about how we stretch every dollar and make an impact without spending a ton for an emerging brand, like good culture, um, you know, we have that, that, that builds a lot of, um, you know, the decision-making, um, coming from that experience. But in terms of my team, um, it's, it's, it's very similar, right? You want to create everything that you do needs to create a memorable experience that they're going to want to talk about. Um, and that's going to lead to greater retention. It's going to lead to um, better talent um, a- acquisition because you're creating an experience internally that people are going to talk about. And it's, it's, there's really, there's not a big difference between the way consumers fall in love with your brand and talk about it to other people versus the way employees will fall in love with your brand and tell other people to want to you know, come work for you. You know, I'd love to hear you describe, define scrappy a little more because I get it about the, the budget and all, but I think there's a scrappiness about you in the sense of not giving up that, that, um, 
I mean, what are some of the, obviously you've learned from a number of failures along the way and internally with your team, how does that, how does that translate for you? You know what I mean? Like, cause I think I, I get it about make each dollar stretch. That mean that is scrappy. You've got to really think through it. You've got to do your homework. You got to know it. We know what you're trying to produce. And then, but I'd love to know what some of your learning experiences and how that showed up there. Yeah. I mean, you know, for me being scrappy, um, is about wearing several hats, um, rolling up your sleeves and, and, and I think, you know, it kind of does connect to this, this notion of, you know, being one of, you know, being a, being a family member and, and being vulnerable because you're willing to kind of do what it takes to win at all costs. And, you know, even though I'm the founder or I'm the CEO, that doesn't mean that I'm not willing to be out there in the field merchandising or be out there, you know, in the field, riding on a truck, helping, you know, to get something delivered. Um, like there's, you know, you're willing to do anything. If you're a scrappy organization, your, your title means absolutely nothing. Um, and you're willing to come together and do whatever it takes to get to the top of the mountain and to win. Um, and so that, that is definitely a big part of our culture. Um, one of the rally cries internally is more faster, better. Um, and that drives a lot of our thinking, uh, you know, and it, and it drives kind of just the way we, we show up from like an energy standpoint, we always know, um, that we can do more. Right. And we always know we can be better, um, tomorrow than we were, than we were today. Um, but I think that comes from being scrappy, you know, organizations, larger organizations, um, that, you know, that are kind of, uh, you know, built with strong hierarchy, um, that have, you know, folks kind of in the ivory tower, if you will, you don't see that scrappiness, right? It's not there. And that does lead to culture erosion. Um, you know, people are not as happy to be a part of that because they don't feel seen or heard or understood or appreciated, right? They, they just don't because they don't feel like what they're doing is making as much of an impact. Or if they do do something that creates an impact, they don't feel like it's really being fully appreciated or, or seen. Um, and so, yeah, being scrappy in terms of how you show up culturally I think has to do with, you know, putting, putting yourself out there in an authentic way and letting them know like you're dude, you're in the trenches with them. They're not out there alone. You're not, you're not just like sitting back and evaluating them and judging them. You're, you're out there winning together or losing together. Yeah. That's what I heard when you were describing it too. And thanks for, thanks for adding to that. A mm -hmm. uh, couple, couple things came to mind. Um, one is um, just to note, your emphasis on the employee experience working for you, right? Or at least your conversation about it. I mean, I don't know how many bosses are listening, thinking about oh, shit. I don't even pay attention to that at all. I pay yeah. them. I pay them a salary. What do they want from me is usually the <laughs> attitude I hear. Right. Like I listen, what do they want? You know, and they, and anyway, to their own chagrin and to their own, you know, they lose a lot of great talent. Um, but this thing about scrappiness, the word that was flying through my head was presence, you know, and a willingness to really reinvent yourself and, and put yourself in the line. Um, and that's, that is, you know, that generates such a natural camaraderie. I hear you saying it's like, Oh, hold on. He's going to go in first. He's the first one in, he's the last one to go. Right. Wow. I'll follow this guy. And, um, anyway, just beautiful. Yeah. One, one thing I'll, I'll add to that too, like it's, it's small things too. Right. And you, you probably know this being, being a coach. Um, but like little things like using the word should versus, you know, not saying like, like we should have done like this. You should have done that. You should have done this. Like when you do that, you're immediately creating a separation, right? It's like, Oh, it's like me versus them. Like you, 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 like you should have done that. It, you know, it, but by saying the word should, you're basically saying I would have freaking done it right. Yeah, <laughs> but, and, but you, but you screwed it up. You suck and I'm better than you. So now go fix it. So that, that immediately puts them into this place of like, Oh God, like I, I feel like shit. Now I feel defensive. Yeah, I, I don't want to work as hard for this guy anymore. Cause he's annoying. <laughs> um, so like just changing the word should is like a huge thing. And that's something that, you know, I learned, that's like one trick I learned along the way. It's like, dude, just stop, stop, you stop saying should like, it's not about like make it something that it is, is more collaborative. You know, like there, it's not you versus them. You're in this together. So like just like one little simple uh, word modification can change everything. Like what can we learn from this? And you know, what's wanted and needed, you know, what's missing that we can add. Yeah. Right. 
because it takes away the shame. Then the minute right. I ask, well, what's, what, what, what we can learn from this, we're shoulder to shoulder looking at the problem. Exactly. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. It says, yeah, we should have done this or you should have done that. It's like, hey, I saw what happened. Like, how do you think we could have done that better? Like, how could I, how could I have helped you more there? Like, what, did, what can I do differently next time? Was there something you could have yeah. asked? Me for? Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. And now suddenly you're on the same page and it's like yeah, freaking, ha freaking happy family. And now that person wants to fight harder for you. And you're still, and you're still conveying your point, right? You're still like letting them know like, Hey man, like I could have been done better. We could have probably gotten a better result, but like, let's, let's figure this shit out together. Well, it goes yeah. back really, as I, I think about it, it goes back to the whole issue of authenticity because when something fails, everybody, I feel bad. And if I was authentic about it, I feel bad that it failed. I feel that bad that I missed how I could have supported you or what I could have contributed. And, and then I'm, I, I kind of, there's a leap to, well, how do I protect myself from what is obvious? And one way to do that is to blame you or to, mm. you know, externalize the problem and wonder why you couldn't get it done, mm. which further drives that, it drives that shame and shame cuts off the connection, the bond and the collaboration. Mm. And people go into a defensive posture. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Talk about, yeah. I mean, if you want to take the air out of the room. Put, put, put some put some shame into it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Throw everybody throw everybody underground. Yeah. Um, you know, and then it becomes such like a posturing process. Is, right. You know, people stop taking risks if they think they're gonna be if they think their own their being will be attacked. Like who they are will be attacked, which is what shame does. Um, distinct from guilt, like oh the thing I did didn't work, and I you know that sucks guilt shame is you're bad for doing it that way yeah um you know but if people think their being is going to be attacked then they just they, they naturally don't take risks they right. i'm not willing to throw myself especially not for this guy or not for this salary or blah 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 i don't have equity here yet blah blah you know it's like they got a whole story about it but it's really you know this kind of primal is it safe here yeah can i trust this you know and and we're inevitably going to do some of that. The idea then comes back to vulnerability is, hey, look, I made a mistake here. I, I see what I've done. You know, will you forgive me? And can we start again? Can we try this again? Right, right. right. Just yeah. to be able to do that is, <laughs> it's good. I mean, it's crazy how you can mess up and then by owning it, you can deepen the trust that you had before you even messed up. You That's know? right. hundred percent. Yeah. And I, and I think, what, you know, what you said around risks is is a key one right because if you're totally right like if you have that shame if you're if you don't feel like there's true collaboration if you don't feel like you can truly be vulnerable with that person um if the trust isn't there you're never going to take risks ever and if you don't take those risks yeah you're you're most likely not going to drive um game-changing action right it, you know it all starts with having the confidence to take a risk so you're right 100 like your, your risk taking completely goes away um, if, if you don't believe that you can be truly, um, yourself and feel comfortable being yourself in that environment. Along with creativity, just <laughs> yep, it zaps it, it zaps it hundred percent. I'm, I'm curious, Jesse, sorry, sorry, Chad. No, go ahead. I was just curious. I mean, you're obviously, I mean, you're really articulate, which I remember our first conversation. I was like, wow, this guy, he's clear on what he's up to, which is just inspiring. Um, so thanks for that. Um, I'm curious about, because you seem like very values driven, very intentional, I would say, about what you're up to. You know, there's not a lot of act. There's not um, it's not like an accident that, you know, you're on a you've been on a roll. Um, I'm curious about bold behavior, like for you, you know, what type of risks have you taken or what maybe if you just think about some bold stuff, which might be you had to sever something or cut something off or say no to a good option. Um, I'm curious for you about some bold decisions that you've made. I think people uh, have decided, seems like a lot of people have finally decided uh, it doesn't matter. COVID and like the, the shift that's happening, I'm done using COVID as the reason why I can't do anything. Mm. Now it's time to get out and make something happen and generate something new. I'm, I'm Anyway, I just love to hear if you throw that lens in front of you and just think about what, what, what bold actions have you taken uh, in the last, I don't know, month or so. To yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think one of the big ones goes back to um, the, the milk supply that I, that I discussed, right? Because yeah. when we did first launch, it was easier because we were a much smaller company and 
uh, we were lucky enough to find a co-packer, um, a small co-op that had the milk supply that we wanted, right? They had an organic milk supply and they had a pasture-raised milk shed. And so it was very easy to kind of put the products out that we, that we wanted. Um, as I mentioned, as we scaled, we realized that that milk supply didn't exist in a bigger way. Um, and so we had to make, you know, a pretty, you know, bold decision to continue to put products out into the marketplace, um, that, that didn't immediately line up, um, with, with, um, you know, with the, with the, with the ideal milk supply that we wanted. And so we had to figure out like, what the hell are we going to do here? Cause like, as I said, you can't change, like you can't, your values can't change or why can't change you can, that, that can't erode. If you lose that as your North star, you're, you're lost. Um, and so the bold decision was, okay, we need to freaking create our own milk supply. <laughs> like that's the only way we can do this because like, Hey, it would have been a lot easier just to be like, well, you know, forget it. Let's like, let's just roll out products that don't align with our values. And it is what it is. And you know, that's just something that happens as you scale and oh, well, um, or you can put yourself on this path of actually changing the food system and creating a milk supply. Um, and like I said, it's, it's not easy. It's not something that happens overnight. Um, but we are chipping away. And we, as I said, we had the, you know, the second largest dairy co-op in the country working with us on it. Um, we're donating 1% of net sales uh, of, of our organic business to this effort. Um, we're trying to get other partners involved to, cut, to kind of help, you know, turn the flywheel there. Um, but that was, you know, that was a, a big, bold undertaking. Um, and it's something that we're continuing to push on and we're seeing momentum. And like I said, you're seeing other people wanting to kind of join in. Like I have other founders now from other culture dairy companies calling me being like, Hey man, I see what you're doing. Like really freaking cool. Like I would love to play there. Like, how can I get involved? How can I help accelerate that effort? Um, so like the yeah. more that happens, you know, like, like how, like how, like what an amazing story to be able to say that an emerging brand was able to come in, um, and, and change, you know, this, this historically broken food system. Um, okay. and what is, what kind of pushback did you get when you made that declaration? Like, where did it come from? And, and how did it serve you? How did the pushback serve you? You know what I mean? Like when you make a declaration like that, usually something that large, you're going to get some pushback from people even closest to you. Yeah. So when we made the, made the decision to, to create a new milk supply. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the pushback is always around economics, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's, you know, almost immediately what it's like, okay, that's cool. You want to do that, but you know, we, we can't, you know, increase cogs. So like, are you going to be able to do that and, and, and still show gross margin improvement? Uh, because if not, then mm, I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, and so like, that's, that's the opportunity now, right? It's like, okay, how do you change the food system um, in a way that aligns with your values and puts better products into the market and, you know, you know, pr provides uh, support for animal welfare and small farmers, et cetera, but also do it in a way that's good for your shareholders. Um, and that's, you know, and that's kind of what we're working on now. Right. So we're kind of trying to figure out how to do both. Um, and there is certainly a way to get to getting there. You can get there. I mean, when you, when you do it the way we're doing it, you're reducing inputs. Um, and you're, and, and, and as you do that, you're pulling costs out, right? You're not using fertilizers. You're not using, um, uh, pesticides, et cetera. So you're, you're, you know, you're pulling those inputs out, which should lead to a more profitable model and you're increasing yields, right? If, if when regenerative agriculture proves out, I mean, that's, that's, that's the result, right? It's like, okay, you're pulling out inputs and you're in, and you're improving your yields. So you should actually land in a more profitable place if you fully commit and get buy-in. Well, and so that's kind of like, that's where we right are on. now. Like, right yeah. on. I mean, I can hear the narrative with your board right. and right. being able to create that, Hey, look, it's worth the investment. It's worth the, it's going to come back to us. And here's where I exactly. see it back. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. It's like short, it's, it's like a short term punch in the gut for a second. It's like, Hey man, like right on. stay with us and take this journey with us because in two years from now, you know, you, you, it's going to be a more profitable model for, for everyone involved, including the farmer who we're fighting for. Yeah. I just got it. Your authenticity and your willingness. To, I mean, I could just, it was enjoyable to watch your brain start working on that. And <laughs> it's like, you let me in on the process. It was really good because I, I know a lot of entrepreneurs, I mean, anytime you want to take a leap like that, you, you get that punch in the gut, you get the pushback. And then the next question, that scrappiness is to get back up go, okay, now how do we solve this problem? And how do we engage everyone, all of the, the stakeholders who are concerned and have something at risk 
in the actual solving of the problem? How do we get on the same page to see if it's going to work or not really authentically and to find out if this is a, a future that could come about and if we stood, right? Right, 100%. Yeah. 100%. And also we're, we're a certified B corporation, right? So we are like legally obligated to make good decisions, um, you know, in, in terms of benefiting the, you know, the, the world, the planet, um, which is huge, right? So we had like a clear score that we were given to qualify and now we need to show, you know, improvement year over year. Um, and so that's something that, you know, all, all shareholders and stakeholders are, are a part of. Wow. Inspiring conversation, Jesse. Thank you so much for your generosity, for coming to us authentic, a real yeah. authenticity, <laughs> yeah, not, not a rehearsed authenticity. Right. Uh, there's so much here, man. Just, just around everything that we talked about, the vulnerability, the scrappiness, the authenticity. I just really appreciate you being here, being a part of our conversation. And it's great to get to know you. Um, we'll put all the links to all of your stuff, LinkedIn and good culture and everything into the description of the episode. So people know exactly where to find you. And uh, I'm going to be buying some different cottage cheese now. Oh, yes. I hope so. I really hope so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. L let me know if you need some coupons. I'll send them your way. Yay. <laughs> Jesse, Sounds thank, good. Thank you so much, man. Thank you so much. We knew at the beginning we were going to want to talk for hours. So. Yeah, I know. I appreciate you guys having me on. Thanks so much. I appreciate you guys. All right, man. Be well. All right. All right you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everybody. Well, friends of the podcast, thank you so much for joining us this week. If this podcast has helped you or entertained you at all, we encourage you to go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating and a glowing review. That'll help us reach more people and grow this community. And finally, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the podcast, we would love to hear from you. You can email me at chad at takenewground.com. Thank you so much for joining us. and We'll meet you back here next week for another episode of the Naked Leadership Podcast. Oh,